I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco-innovations that are changing your world. Bob Dylan sang, for the times, they are changing. The same thing can be said about where we grow our crops, as scarcity of water and soil and changing climate disrupt where we grow. My guest this week is Julia Kernick, Director of Innovation Startups Markets Institute for World Wildlife Fund, to share her thoughts on possible solutions. Julia, welcome to GreenSense. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, we're happy to have you on, and you have a very impressive educational background, adjunct professor at Rutgers Business School, where you teach a social entrepreneurship program. You're an undergraduate from MIT, an MBA in entrepreneurial management from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and a uh, master's of public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Um, we are going to need a lot of smart people like you working together to serve all these complex climate issues. So happy that uh, we have you on the show. Anything you wanted to add about your background? Uh, no, but uh, I, I mean, that that was uh, very flattering. Thank you very much. Uh, but um, no, I think it's a, a good summary. Other than I would say, I've, it's been great to work on both the private and public sector sides, both to to explore different ways to tackle these issues. So in your current role at WWF, you identify and research emerging issues and trends that have the potential to disrupt food and agricultural systems. And before we get into what you do, let's talk a little bit about WWF. Most people, when they think about WWF, they think of a respected science-based nonprofit organization that protects animals. So give us a summary of WWF's missions, programs, fundings, and why it's involved with agriculture. So let's start out. What's the WWF mission? Absolutely. Uh, and it is a, a common question, so one I'm, I'm very glad you asked. Uh, so WWF's mission, you're absolutely right, is, is tied to animals, but it's also a little bit broader. It's about conserving nature and reducing the most pressing threats to our planet, uh, but specifically doing that in a way that people can live in harmony with nature. So biodiversity and, and animals are absolutely, you know, a huge part of that. But I think it is also broader about the, the environment and the larger ecosystem in which we live. Are we considered an animal? Yes, us too. <laughs> so tell me about the uh, major programs WWF is involved with. So we have several uh, in, in agriculture, certainly a key part of that. And, and the reason is that the agriculture and food system is the single largest footprint that people have on the planet. Uh, and so whenever you're discussing these larger goals around, you know, environmental conservation uh, and, and biodiversity protection, it has to include agriculture. And then obviously food and agriculture are so important to, to people uh, and working lands and livelihoods that it is it is one giant issue to tackle. So that's that's the food and agriculture reason. We also have though uh, goal teams uh, in in oceans, in forests, in climate, in wildlife, uh, and in markets, which is is my goal team, uh, and and then the food and freshwater uh, team as well that also tackles agriculture. And how are your programs and your organization funded? We have a variety of sources. We are a nonprofit. Uh, we do depend on funding. Uh, I I don't personally know the exact breakdown. I believe it is on our website of of the sources, but it's a variety of foundations, individual donors, uh, commercial, and government. Do you have any programs that generate re revenue? 
Oh, that is a good question. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my team, no, I, I don't think so. Although we do have a new impact wing uh, that is going to be engaging in impact investments, and they've made their first their first couple, I, I believe, two or three to date. So you have a fund that inv- invests in companies that uh, impact the environment. Yes, and there it's a it's a brand new team at WWF, so still developing its framework and and structure. Uh, but yes, they did make um, at least a couple investments to date in startups. So, how does the World Wildlife uh, Fund uh, uh, get involved with food and agriculture that's uh, targeted for human consumption? Uh, so, as I you know, because it's because food and agriculture is such a major demand on the environment, there's many different ways that. WWF gets involved in it, I can speak best to, you know, my team's role and sort of our approach to it, which is uh, I am on the markets team and specifically on the markets institute. And so we were started with the idea of the the name, we might give it away, but looking at market forces and, uh, you know, finding things that align financial goals with environmental and social goals because we need things to happen much, much faster than they are and at a much larger scale than they are. And that we we are past the point where we can sort of wait uh, and we have to be proactive about them. And so the our team, you know, works to influence, work with and develop different solutions within that framework. My role specifically is at the very entrepreneurial end of that, of trying to develop new business models and new business strategies that do accomplish those double and triple bottom lines uh, in food and agriculture. I will say it's not that we're not the ones investing in startups or choosing uh, one one company. It's really developing those business models and business strategies at an industry or ecosystem level. That sounds really good. Uh, can you put that into maybe more tangible uh, ideas that our listeners can understand? So can you give us a concrete example of programs that you're putting into practice, maybe one or two? Absolutely. Uh, and yes, I, I always do that when explaining my job since I agree it is otherwise a little nebulous and, and difficult. <laughs> uh, so one of them is certainly going to be the next California project that I know we're going to talk about would be one great example. So I can I can give one other first perhaps, uh, and then we can dive into that one. Uh, you know, another, another project uh, that I'm working on right now, for example, is around indoor agriculture. So sort of vertical agriculture and looking at those soilless systems like hydroponic and aeroponic uh, farms. And, you know, our premise on that project was, uh, you know, this is a an exciting industry. It is a, you know, quickly growing industry, uh, has some really great undeniable benefits around things like water use and eliminating soil erosion, pesticide use, food loss and food waste, ability to grow food in places that are, you know, otherwise cannot. Uh, But it's also a very niche industry with a lack of best sort of practices sometimes and lack of knowledge sharing. And it has a really large energy footprint. Uh, So when you're using that much lighting to to grow crops, it's both the direct lighting and then that much lighting, even with efficient LEDs, creates excess heat. Uh, And so you have this huge HVAC cost in your air conditioning in winter. And so it's not that we're you know, trying to source out one farm, but it was how can we help this entire industry move forward? How can we look at building these farms differently, integrating into communities, utilizing stranded assets or diverse partnerships to drive down that energy footprint uh, and therefore unlock all the great benefits this industry brings and hopefully see 
you know, these farms growing a greater variety of fruits and vegetables in more areas. Well, my good friend, Michael Rose from uh, Good Food Ventures uh, uh, got us in touch because that is my area of expertise, building indoor vertical growing operations. So thanks for sharing that. And let's get into the meat of what we really want to address. And that's agriculture in the U.S. Uh, much of our fruits and vegetables are grown in California and Western states, and they're in a long-term drought. In addition, we're finding as the climate changes, Northern states are getting warmer with longer growing season. We're losing arable land and precious topsoil. So it's really time to have that serious discussion on where should we grow crops based on water use, soil con conservation, and the changing climate. This is a very complex issue. It has the, uh, the potential to disrupt a trillion dollar food system. <laughs> so tell us about what you're working on and the ideas you have for solving this very complex issue. Yes, thank you. Uh, so all, all of what you said, I uh, com completely agree with. And uh, so we began to to take a look at this and I, I don't think anyone would be shocked to hear uh, that you know, California will not be able to continue to produce all the fruits and vegetables it produces today. Uh, you identified drought. Uh, it, that's absolutely a huge part of it. There's also fires and there's also just heat, uh, you know, fewer and fewer crops that, especially if you're looking at tree crops and crops that, you know, sort of perennials that need resting time over the winter, will be able to get cool enough temperatures in the winter in California uh, to fruit properly in the spring. And so it's all sorts of pressures on that system. Uh, the the, what we saw was that if we leave farming to shift on its own, it will. I don't think that it's that we're not going to have fruits and vegetables, but that two things might happen. Uh, one, that it'll shift to an area that involves land conversion. Uh, and you sort of identified that already by saying there's a lot of northern states warming up. Uh, so especially places like the Dakotas and Montana have uh, not been large farming states, but as they get warmer, they could support it, but it would mean tearing up non-farmland to make farmland. Uh, that brings a really large environmental footprint uh, and is a major problem for biodiversity. So we wanted to, to prevent that by proactively ship, shifting somewhere else. And then the other thing that we would be worried about if left to shift on its own is that we'll duplicate the system that exists in California today. Uh, so one that's not particularly equitable, not particularly focused on growers uh, or communities or workers. Uh, and so wanted to see, can we proactively shift it somewhere that avoids land, land conversion that's better for the environment, but then also gives us the chance to design a radically different system uh, and one that is you know, focused on, on equity, on small and minority farmers and on communities. Yes, lofty goals, you know, hard to put in practice. And you're a very market-based uh, person. Um, in my mind, one of the ways to approach this, there's not one way, there's many ways, is to look at the archaic Western water rights. They, uh, they actually promote bad water practice farming. And if we're able to change those water uh, laws and water rights uh, that really promote water conservation and good farming practices, would, would that be a market-based solution? I think it could be. I think there's many ways to to tackle the market and certainly many policies and many existing uh, market forces do do lead to the system that we have today. So it, it is a multifaceted 
problem. I mean, in our case, we're specifically had narrowed in on on bringing this to the mid Mississippi Delta, uh, so it wouldn't necessarily engage those the water laws you're referencing, but perhaps we could learn from those uh, and and avoid some of the take lessons learned uh, from places that have already gone in the other direction. And why did you pick the Mississippi Delta? Uh, it's uh, for many reasons. Uh, it is a it is an area that's rich in farming already. Uh, so the mid Mississippi Delta has uh, about the same size of cultivated acres as you know California, depending exactly how you're defining the regions. Uh, but it's pretty much all commodity row crops. So things like rice, wheat, corn for feed, uh, like for animals, as opposed to corn, sweet corn that we would eat, uh, cotton and soy. Uh, and so it is these very, very large scale farms growing row crops, but it's already farmland with fertile soils, with terrific farmers and a terrific agricultural ecosystem of extension schools and extension agents and sort of, a, I think, those intangible assets that are hard to, to recreate. Uh, it is also has plenty of water, sometimes even more water than than needed. Although I do recognize I'm saying this while the Mississippi River is <laughs> is is low, but historic in general, that's not a in general that's not a concern. Uh, and from a market perspective, it it has a lot of assets too. It's very centrally located. Uh, it's easy to get to quite a lot of the country, especially coming out of the last few years. A lot of uh, you know major companies want shorter and more diverse supply chains. Uh, so there's a great market argument there, uh, and it's. It's in dire need of economic development, which is, I think, both a hurdle and an opportunity. It's an opportunity to really do something differently there, uh, but it also means it's easier to attract some of those market forces uh, because right now it is less expensive than California to do so. With the climate warming up and uh, it seems like the cooler patterns are more migrating towards the north, you know, uh, can that area become overheated and become an issue with changing climate? It's a really good question. Uh, and I mean, yes, it, it, it could. Uh, there is the thing that might be the saving grace there is that it's still seasonal. Uh, so you have very different temperatures in the summer and winter there as opposed to somewhere like California, you know, that has a much similar temperature year round. Uh, so even as temperatures warm up in the Delta, it is more likely to mean that the growing season is shifting in when it happens as opposed to going away altogether. Uh, and for crops that do need the resting time over the winter, you know, there's still a, quite a lot of room for it to warm up, but they would still get that uh, because they have that big differential from, you know, mid, mid-August to, to mid-January. Agriculture is a big driver of the California economy. Are they going to go willingly uh, and, and, and get this business to migrate out? Or is this going to take some uh, uh, incentives? So I think that um, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's an important piece that, that I haven't brought up yet, which is that we don't mean any of this to be against California. We're not trying to take anything from California. We're not trying to you know steal agriculture. Uh, that's the last thing we want to do. It is it, the, the premise we're starting with is that agriculture will have to shift and it will shift because California simply won't be able to support all the crops it does today. That's 
also not meant to say that they will stop being an agricultural state altogether. But I think California is going to have to make some hard choices on which crops to focus on as they have fewer resources like water uh, to be able to grow as many they do now. And simply because some won't be able to be grown. You know, California grows almost all of our peaches now, uh, which is, I know, a surprise. Everyone thinks Georgia, but California really grows pretty much all of them. Uh, and peaches are one of those crops that by the next couple decades won't be able to grow in California due to due to heat. So I don't, we're not trying to take it from California. We're just trying to proactively think if it's already shifting out, how can we use that as an opportunity? Industries are very, very rarely adapt. When I think of records or cassettes, you know, very few companies get into the new technology. So is there any plans in place to help California farmers maybe transition and get involved with moving crops, you know, out of California? Because as we all know, this is not sustainable. It's going to happen one way or the other, but people are going to lose jobs and they're going to lose money. So how do we make that transition more smooth? It's a really good point. Uh, and I, I think it's something we need to to really consider. Uh, I, you know, what we are concentrating on this project is is focused on the economy of the mid Delta. And, you know, for example, pretty much all of the remaining minority farmers today, especially if we're talking about black farmers, are in the mid-Mississippi Delta. Uh, and so we're talking a lot about, you know, how can we support farmers that are already in the Delta? How can we support small and minority farmers that have been consistently left out of the equation? Uh, but we absolutely need to also consider what will this mean for California and livelihoods and workers there. I I don't know that we can tackle everything. That certainly falls into an important part we're debating right now, which is what are all the unintended consequences here? So it's not just what happens in California, but as farming does shift, what happens to that land? Uh, you know, are there other ways to be proactive here? So I I think it's an important discussion we need to have. I think it needs to be thoughtful and proactive, but I don't know that I, I have all the magic answers to give you here on what that looks like. Well, as I said earlier, it's nice to have very smart people like you working on these issues because they're complex and it's going to take a team to solve them. Uh, uh, one of the things you shared with me uh, prior to our, our discussion was a chart that showed where vegetable farms were, the density of vegetable farms, and where uh, food deserts or areas uh, that were underserved were. And it was amazing to see the proximity of underserved areas to vegetable production. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, it It is. It is very sobering when we created that map that people are going hungry and don't have access to food in areas that are producing it. Uh, so there's a, a huge disconnect. I think, uh, happy to talk about that. I think there's two different systems here we are discussing a little bit. So when we talk about California dominating in specialty crops, it's at a commercial level. Uh, and so California grows, you know, the, the large majority of commercial level specialty crops. But if we're moving out of special, you know, commercial level to direct to consumer farms and you know, often what are very small farms, those really do dot most of the country as is, is seen in that map I sent you. Uh, so those aren't, you know, farms necessarily selling to grocery stores or to major food companies, but a lot of the farms that you'll see with farm stands or, uh, you know, very showing up at farmers markets and or even you pick enterprises that are dotted across the country. Uh, but the the problem we have there is that while we have a huge number of 
fruit and vegetable farms, small ones across the country that are selling to consumers. We don't have a pipeline today that is set up to really do a good job getting that food from farmer to consumer directly. Uh, and so the the markets that do exist tend to be both in higher income, more metropolitan counties. Uh, and then, so even if a farm's elsewhere, it travels there to get to that market and they tend to all be pickup models. So things like on-farm, farm stands, farmer's markets, or if you're familiar with CSA shares where someone has to pick up a weekly shipment, all wonderful if you can access them and afford them, but it also isn't very convenient. Uh, and so it is a, a limited market and it makes it hard to get food to more people. Well, Julia, uh, there's so much to cover on this topic. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on this. Uh, in closing, what do you like best about your job? <laughs> I love my job. So I always get excited to talk about it. Uh, I, I, To me, it's the perfect blend of being able to tackle these really large scale issues in an innovative way. Uh, but with this incredible support structure behind me uh, of of WWF and its ability to to make change at a large scale, to open doors, to get information out, uh, but to do it in a very, I think, both audacious and bold, but also pragmatic way. Well, that sounds like a wonderful job. I'm jealous and I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. My guest is Julia Kernick, Director, Innovation Startups Market Institute, World Wildlife Fund, discussing the shift and where we grow crops and how we could re-envision that system to be more resilient to climate change. Green Sense is an independent radio show. We rely on sponsorship and listener support to produce high quality audio broadcasts that promote innovators with sustainable solutions. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, visit the greensensefarms.com website to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense and check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM, WBBM, Chicago.